0: if you'll take your Bible and uh, let's go to Luke chapter 2, and this is probably one of the most familiar um, passages that you know of in Scripture, and it is the traditional uh, Christmas story as uh, given to us um, through the eyes of of Luke. And so it says in chapter 2 and verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus, And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flock at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people." Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. I love the Christmas season, and they're for many different reasons. But one of the things every year uh, when Christmas rolls around, I don't know about you, but I think all the way back to my childhood. And I can remember Christmases that took place when I was very, very young as though they happened yesterday. I can remember details, I can remember the sights, the sounds, the smells, individuals who were there. I mean, I have a hard time remembering what I ate for lunch yesterday most times, right? So whenever there is an emotion attached to a memory, it becomes a very powerful thing. And so I don't know what early Christmases were like for you. Uh, Maybe some of you, you're like the Hallmark Channel, right? So at Christmas Eve, uh, you've solved a huge family problem, go out and cut down a tree, bring it home, put it up, you know, decorate it, decorate your house, invite 30 of your friends over and and give it, you know... Deliver a 20-pound turkey. I don't know. How, and, and if that weren't enough, you make it to the local church for their pageant that night. I don't know how they do that all on Christmas Eve. I don't, I don't see how they get it done. But that's not the typical household in America. I don't know what Christmas was like for you as a youngster. I don't know what your family traditions were, but I'm sure that you had some. And, uh, yeah, early on, we used to go out and cut the tree, and I remember, you know, putting it up and watering it and all those things and decorating. And, and it, uh, on Christmas Eve, it was family tradition because my parents, uh, as you know, most of you know, they divorced when I was young. And so my, my dad would come in for Christmas Eve, and I, we would always go to my grandparents and my grandmother. Uh, she loved to cook the Christmas Eve meal, right? So she just went all out. That just get great, gave her great, great pleasure to do that, and we would celebrate on Christmas Eve, and then, you know, we would celebrate uh, with my mom on, on Christmas Day, and and so uh, you, you think about those things that, that went on and transpired, maybe gifts that you received and things that happened uh, as a result of that, and you probably, um, a part of your tradition is you watch some of your favorite Christ, uh, Christmas movies. I mean, I have a favorite Christmas movie, right? All right, so my favorite, all-time favorite Christmas movie... Uh, even when I watch it today, and I watched it just like a week and a half ago with my grandson, my all-time favorite Christmas movie is Under Attack, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Hey, get off Rudolph, okay? (laughs) He's doing the best he can. So now, you know, people say, well, you can't, you know, whatever. But anyway, that was my favorite. And even when I watch it, even at my age, I can remember the I can remember watching that as a child and just feeling the same feelings and and you know having the same like you know uh, the first time you ever watch it you know as a child you know the abominable snowman and Cornelius uh, you know and all these guys I mean you just Yukon Cornelius and. Oh, yeah, it just it takes me back, right? So, some of you, it might have been a, It's a Wonderful Christmas or uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas or uh, It's a Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street. I don't know. Home Alone. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, Home Alone's a big one. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I don't know. Grinch, Elf, whatever you love. And so you you have those memories, right? And you, you, you love, and you, you love to watch those movies year in and year out, and, and music, all right? So you listen to certain music. My wife and I, uh, as we were traveling back from North Carolina last uh, uh, weekend, you know, last Sunday, we were coming back and listening to Christmas music. And, of course, it's all secular Christmas music on this channel, the only channel we could get in the mountains of uh, West Virginia And so you know those Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and all the different uh, songs you heard: Jingle Bell, Santa Claus Coming Town, All I Want for Christmas Is a Hippopotamus. My wife's favorite. Uh, Not. (laughs) (laughs) She hates that song. (laughs) She hates it. (laughs) She tried to turn my radio off. I said, "Don't touch my radio." (laughs) Politely. So you know when I was growing up as a child, because I did not, I was not raised in a Christian home. Those are the only kind of songs I heard uh, when it came to Christmas because that's just what we did. And so it wasn't until I was saved late in my teens that I began hearing songs like Silent Night and We Three Kings "No Holy Night and Angels We've Heard on High and Emmanuel and all those songs that we, we love and are near and dear to our hearts during the Christmas holiday season. And so here we are in the first Christmas here in Luke chapter 2. And uh, obviously, um, this was not like a a grand happening in the life of Joseph and Mary. You know, there's no the trimming of the trees. There's no, you know, fixing the turkey or the ham and having family over and handing out gifts and listening to music and going to pageants and all those kinds of things. And so the angels of God burst onto the scene announcing to the original uh, rednecks, the shepherds, that there is good news That is about to come upon them and it's going to result in what? He says this good news is going to result in joy and the reason it's joyful is because it is available for all people. Now there's a reason I think that why the angel gave this news to shepherds because shepherds would not have included themselves in the all people, right? And in other words, the angel is saying, listen, the good news I'm about to bring you is not just for the educated, it's not just for the well-behaved, it's not just for the, those who dress well or those who have healthy families and strong marriages and are gainfully employed. No, it is news for all people. And you see, the shepherds in their day and time, I mean, they were kind of in a class all unto themselves. They were just a step above tax collectors. Right, they were dirty. They were smelly. It was considered, you know, even lower than a servant. And so, as you read throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, you'll notice that oftentimes the, the, the task in a family of being a shepherd uh, was handed down to the, the you know the least of the sons or the, the youngest son. And for example, when uh, Samuel came uh, looking for, to anoint the next king over Israel, he asked Jesse, Hey, where? Give me your bring out your sons. And he didn't even think about David because David was what at that time? He was a shepherd. And so shepherds in that day and time uh, could not even go into temple unless they, you know, went home, got cleaned up and, and you know, wore different clothes, cleaned themselves up. They, they could not come off of a field tending sheep and, and go straight to temple. They weren't even allowed in the presence of God. They are just not welcome. And so it's incredible that here they are, as smelly and as badly dressed as they may have been, they were invited into the birthing room of the Messiah. And the message is clear. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you look like, this message, this Messiah is for you. And that's the message that we have for Christmas, right? That Jesus is for everyone. He's not for the haves and not the have-nots, but he's, he's for everyone, who regardless, Jesus came for you, he came for everyone, and the good news is of great joy, for you see, joy is not just feeling, it's not just a feeling that I have, joy is about a relationship, it's birthed in relationship, and not just any relationship, but with a relationship, with the very God who created you, and so Jesus came into the world to be that bridge from unholy man to holy god that we might enter into the relationship with the very god who created us that's good news with great joy so i want to spend the entire month on this subject of choosing joy now last month we spent the month on growing in gratitude and if you flip the coin over it's the it's the uh, you know opposite side of growing in gratitude is choosing joy choosing to live in joy regardless of what your circumstances may be Because rather than choosing joy, our default is that we choose happiness. We are on a happiness quest. It is built into our DNA, right? Even as a child, you, you were on a happiness quest. So what was Christmas all about for you as a child, right? Getting the right present, man. I, I made my list. I checked it twice. And I, and I checked. I'm not naughty, but I'm nice. And I, I wanted it, right? So I, I thought if I just got this one gift, if I just got this thing that I've asked for, I'm going to be happy for the rest of my life. Your kids ever tell you that? You know it's a lie. <laughs> happiness is the dominant theme in our American culture. Happiness, for most people, we believe is a virtue that we ought to continue to pursue it. It's even in our, our national phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so life is about me. It's about finding happiness. And so we, we set out on that quest in life. And if, if you don't think you're, you're on a quest for happiness, happiness is really the reason why you chose your spouse. If you're really honest with yourself, this person, I believe, was going to make me happy, right? How long that last? Some of you didn't even get through your honeymoon. You were fighting with each other. And so, uh, you know, the divorce rate's still over 50%. Everybody, when they got married, thought, huh, you're going to make me happy for the rest of my life. And then, you know, two, three years down the road, you can't even stand to be in the same room with each other. So that's, you know, sometimes that's why we choose our friends, right? Because we like to be around them. They make us feel good. They, they make us feel happy. Sometimes it's the reason why we chose our career, because we felt like this career was an interest of mine, and it, and it just really makes me happy being engaged and involved in this career. Sometimes it's why you choose a church, because you, you in one form or another, it's about happiness. You, you like to be around those people, and they make you happy. The problem with life is we have problems, a lot of problems, and happiness is always built upon circumstances, happenings, circumstances that are favorable to you. So I can be happy one minute and unhappy the next, right, because that's just the way life is. I can't avoid it. You can't avoid it, Uh, but we attempt to deal with our problems and secure our happiness Uh, we have to make decisions, right? So what happens if I took a job because I believed it was going to make me happy, and now it no longer makes me happy? I change my job, right? What happens if I have a group of friends who used to make me happy, but now all of a sudden they don't make me happy anymore? I change my friends. I change my spouse. I change my church. I change my location, I think, you know what? I'm not happy in Ohio with these stupid winters anymore. I want to be somewhere in the south where the sun shines and the warmth is on my face every single day of the year. Right? So I'm going to move. I'm going to relocate. Lord, are you hearing me? Uh, I'm going to. (laughs) So so this happiness quest, now think about this. You are on a merry-go-round trying to pursue happiness. Because it's always elusive, right? You think you have it and you, it's in your grasp, but then all of a sudden it's gone. And to add to that, what happens if a person thinks, you know, what makes me happy is different than what you think? For example, if I stop being happy with my wife and I think, well, I'll just, trade, I'll just change wives, well, how does that make her feel? Uh, because, you know, for her, it's like, wait a minute. I- I'm the one on the short end of this stick. Uh, this is not how I define happiness. Happiness is life with you together. The same way in, you know, career, jobs, whatever. You... The question ultimately is, people ask me all the time, well, well, does that, doesn't God want us to be happy? Sure he does. Sure he does. But God also understands that happiness is very short-lived. That happiness comes and goes, ebbs and flows. That happiness is, if that's your quest in life, it's always going to be just beyond your reach, just beyond your boundary. God created you for something more than that. God created you for joy because there's a huge difference between joy and happiness. Joy is not dependent upon circumstances. Joy is eternal. Happiness is temporary. There are a lot of differences between happiness and joy. We'll get into some of more of those uh, next week, but um, the fact of the matter is, you know, when we sing Christmas carols, for example, it says happiness to the world, right? No, joy to the world. In fact, you won't sing a Christmas carol that's talking about pursuing happiness, But it is talking, those carols are talking about pursuing joy, pursuing a relationship because our joy is found in a person and that person is Jesus Christ whom Christmas is all about, right? It's all about him, it's not about us. So we, we pursue, we pursue Christ because he is the one who ultimately brings us joy into our lives, joy to not the world, but he wants to bring joy to your world. To your personal world, God wants you to live a joy filled life because He understands that is your deepest need is joy. Now, there is a concrete, genuine hope for joy in your life in the midst of some of the most hard and difficult seasons. You can maintain joy. You believe that? I mean, one of the individuals who writes about joy a lot in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. And a lot of times when he's writing about joy, he's writing it from a prison cell in Rome, awaiting his trial, awaiting his execution. He's not laying on his yacht. Sipping on iced tea and sunning himself while these things are happening, and so uh, if, if there's anyone we can learn from, it's from the Apostle Paul. It's from others in the in the Scripture that helps us in order to maintain joy even through difficult seasons of your life. Because here's what I know: every single one of us has difficult seasons in our lives where things just don't go the way that you thought they would go, they don't go as planned, and loved ones around you are maybe having, having difficulty. Happiness in and of itself will never be enough for us. So you're going to hear me say this byline, really it's my tagline to this series, you need to choose joy because happiness is never enough. It's never enough because it's so elusive, right? It's here today and gone tomorrow. It will never satisfy we find this out on Christmas, right? Uh, do you remember as a child, you, you know, Christmas Day, you run down there, and, man, you start tearing into packages. And you, you don't even look at what you're opening. It's like oh, you, you open the box, you know, especially if they were underwear and socks. Man, like, get them out of here. And you're going at it, and, and now you, you've, you, there's this mass mess in the living room, you know, and, and half the stuff is under wrapping paper as, as you just, like, plowed through all of the gifts. Let me ask you a question. How long did that happiness last? How long was it before all of those toys and gifts are in a closet somewhere not to be played with again? Or they ended up in the garage sale? See, all of these things that we so pursue for happiness Oftentimes, even once we get what it is we thought was going to bring us the ultimate happiness just doesn't last. Joy is much different. It's something that we can experience all the time. It's not happiness that we were created for. It's not what Christmas is all about. The angel said that we, to the shepherds that we are bringing you good news of great joy to all mankind, to you and to me. And yet the, the fact of the matter is God has left the decision up to you and me. As to whether or not we experience joy, listen, the title of this message is Joy is a Choice. You say, well, I thought joy was a part of the Holy Spirit. You know, it was part of the, you know, the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, it's listed as the fruit of the Spirit. But please understand that when you look at the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and it's not like God just all of a sudden just dropped fruit on you. It is something you must choose to go after. There are things you must choose to do if you are going to experience the fruit that God has downloaded into you Through the person of the Holy Spirit, as God says in the book of Philippians, we have to work out what God is working in us. Now, here's why this is so important. It's because our lives are lived on two tracks, all right? There's the good and the not so good. Or I like to put it this way, there's the track of joy and there's the track of sorrow. So there are all kinds of things that happen to us that bring hurt and sorrow and resentment into our lives Every day of my life, I experience some things that are good and pleasurable and exciting and some things that are not so good, some things that are difficult, some things that are disappointing or maybe some losses. Some of you had a tough year last year or this year, 2018. You're looking forward to 2019. I remember, it just seemed like when we entered into 2018 this year, like everybody was saying, man, 2017 was a rough year. I'm so glad to be out of that year. Because of all the sorrows and the losses, and sometimes you lose loved ones, and, and uh, you lost maybe a job, there was a divorce, there was a disappointment, and that's just the way life is. You cannot avoid those things. We live in a fallen world among fallen people, and therefore there's always going to be problems in life. So the question is, if I'm going to live my life on the sorrow track in pursuit of happiness, I'm gonna spend most of my time pretty sorrowful, right? I'm trying to find happiness. I find it, I got it, but it didn't last. It kinda of went away. You know, something happened, something transpired, and now all of a sudden my happiness is gone. But when you choose to live on the joy track, as we're gonna study this together over the next several weeks, You're going to discover that it doesn't matter what the circumstance might be, that there is nothing that can rob you of your joy if you are living on the joy track. I'm not saying that life is going to be perfect. I'm not saying that you're not going to have disappointment and difficulties in life. We're always going to have that in this lifetime. There's not a single one of us who's going to get up tomorrow and say, "Whoo, I'm glad uh, uh, you know, my, that part of my life's behind me. Now it's just nothing but rosiness all the rest of the way until I enter into heaven with Jesus. So God created you for joy. I want you to learn how to experience this incredible gift that God wants to give to you this Christmas. So let me start off by defining joy. And this comes out of the book by Kay Warren. Some of you know Rick and Kay Warren, pastor Saddleback. Rick and Kay Warren had a son who battled with mental illness all of his life. And uh, in his mid-20s, a couple years ago, he committed suicide. And it was out of that experience uh, that Kay wrote a book called Choose Joy. And so I love, love, love. I had my own definition of joy, but I absolutely love this definition of joy. I'm giving her credit, but there are three things I want you to underline out of this definition as we're going to unpack it over the next several weeks. It says that joy is the settled assurance. There's the first thing I want you to underline. Settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life, the quiet confidence, underline that, quiet confidence, that ultimately everything is going to be all right, and the determined choice Underline that, determined choice to praise God in all things. So I've had you underline settled assurance, quiet confidence, and determined choice. That's what joy is about. Joy is a choice. And if joy is going to be in your world and your life, if you want to experience it, there are some decisions that you must make. Now, let me just say this, why this is so important number one, is because joy will build your faith. It will build your faith. Our relationship with God is a faith walk, right? So when we are walking with Jesus, we open up our Bible, and we come to James chapter one, and it says, consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, that when you face various trials in life... (laughs) Okay? And it goes on to say that as you persevere through these trials, as you continue your faith walk with God, that God's going to develop something within you. That God's going to form and to fashion your life and your character and your ability to persevere when facing trials. I, I don't know about you, but I would rather consider it a, a reason for worry, a reason for anxiety, a reason for fear than to consider it pure joy. Am I alone in that? Because aren't those the things that we struggle with? Worry, anxiety, fear, in the midst of the problems and the trials and the difficulties that we face in life? Anything but joy. And I know that God says he uses these things to grow my faith, but hey, can't I just res- you just kind of remain like a spiritual baby? Why does God have to grow me up? Just keep me a baby and cuddle me, God, and it- until I get into heaven. Isn't that what we want? I mean, think about a baby. So, like, okay, we were at my daughter's house. Silas is seven months old. He's a baby. He's dependent upon a human being for everything. Feed him, change his diapers, all those things. I'm thinking, wouldn't it be nice is when, when we're born into God's kingdom, we come as a child, and God just, like, just keeps bottle feeding us, and just keeps changing our diaper, changing our clothes, holding us close until he just ushers us into heaven. Isn't that the way that many of God's people live? Is that like, God, do you, will you do this for me and just hold me and cuddle me and protect me and guard me and hide me because, you know, God, I just want you to, like, put a bubble around me until you usher me into your presence. Life isn't that way, is it? No, you have to grow up. And the way that you grow up, as you grow up, you begin doing things for yourself. You begin taking responsibility for yourself. Well, the same thing is true in, in, in uh, growing in joy is that as we, as we grow in our faith, the size of our joy just begins to expand and expand and expand. And here's a, the second reason why that's important is because the world around us is watching. Look, if I claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but my heart is still all the time just filled with worry and fear and anxiety, what message am I sending to the world around me? What message am I sending to my kids? What message am I sending to my grandchildren? What message am I sending to my church? is that, you know, I don't know if God can be trusted. I don't know if God God can be trusted with that. I don't know that God's that good. I don't know that God, and we put labels on God, and we set up expectations, and we hang on to our worries and fears and anxiety as though God has nothing to say about them. He has a lot to say about them. And so when the watching world, what do they see? In this God that we say that we we trust and we follow and we believe in. I'll give you an example out of Acts chapter 16. Remember Paul and Silas, they're in prison. They are in prison because they healed a a demoniac, someone demon-possessed, lands them in prison. And so they have no idea what's gonna happen to them. And you'll recall that while they were in prison, that they were doing what? They were singing, right? They were worshiping. They were praising the Lord. And then, as they're doing this, who's listening to them? The other prisoners, the jailer. And as they're singing and praising the Lord, all of a sudden, a great earthquake quake comes, and the doors on the cells uh, burst open, and the jailer thinks to himself, My prisoners have, have, have been set free. And so he begins to take his own life because he knew that as a jailer, if his prisoner escaped, Rome's going to execute him. So he'll just do it himself. And all of a sudden, Paul says to him, hell, ho, oh, oh, ho, oh, ho, do not do that. We're all still here. And what, is the, what did the jailer say to Paul? What must I do to be saved? Why, how, why did he ask that question? What is it about Paul and Silas that caused this man to all of a sudden think to himself, what in the world? I want what they've got because here they are in prison. Now, listen, prison in their day and time is not like our modern day prisons, okay? (laughs) These were like pits. They were filthy. They were nasty. There were no modern conveniences there. And yet they're singing, they're worshiping, they're praising. And, and so Paul says, Man, here's what you need to do. And the jailer and then his entire family give their faith, their life to Jesus Christ. What, how would that have been different had Paul and Silas just spent their time, you know, worrying and filled with anxiety and fear and just, you know, pr- calling out to God and say, Oh, God, you got to get us out of this. You got to get us out of this mess. We don't know what we're going to do. And, and on and on. I understand that that's a human response that we have initially. But it should never be our settled response, right? Did I get an amen on that? That was weak. So Paul, sh- <laughs> so, so these men, they, they, they witnessed, they witnessed the joy of Paul and Silas, and as a result, it had a dramatic, well, I wonder what would happen if people around us that we work with, that we live near, that are in our own families, would see as we are journeying down the track of sorrow that in the midst of our sorrow, we are still expounding our joy in the Lord rather than setting the joy aside and picking up worry and fear and anxiety and heading down that track. Because here's what I know what happens. We set up expectations for God And we say, yeah, God, uh, we won't say it this way, but this is what we're saying. God, I'm on a happiness quest here, and it's your responsibility to make me happy and protect me. And uh, so therefore, if it's not happening, we get disappointed, right? When you have an expectation, somebody falls short of that expectation, you become disappointed. And so now I'm disappointed in God. And now I'm, you know, groaning, and I'm, you know, just, I understand did not David do that in the Psalms? You bet he did. He started off that way. But by the time you read the end of that Psalm, what track is he living on? The joy track. There is praise. There is worship. There is adoration. So what keeps us from experiencing true joy? Let me just list these because um, I'm only going to touch them because we're going to expound these um, in latter weeks. Here's number one is a spirit of religion. A spirit of religion is, says this. If I do the right things, if I do the right things, God will love me more and be pleased with me. For some of you, that's the way you've lived your entire Christian life. Man, if I just do the right thing, if I just follow the rules, if I just do all the things and cross my T's and dot my I's, man, God's gonna love me so much more. He's gonna be so much more pleased with me. The passage I read to you out of Ephesians 2. Might I just encourage you to read that very carefully for yourself this week, because that's not what that passage says. Because Paul goes on to say, listen, there ain't nothing you have ever done that caused God to love you more or less, and there was nothing you did to cause God to offer you salvation. God, in his love, out of his compassion, out of his mercy, he has offered that to us by his grace. A spirit of religion says keeping the rules is my ticket to becoming a great person of faith. See, that's what the the Pharisees tried to do, right? Hey, we're keeping all the rules. What happened to them? They became very self-righteous. Like, look at us. Remember what Jesus talked about them in Matthew 6? You guys prance yourself out there to the corners and blow your little horns and watch everybody do your little lengthy prayers and you, you jingle the cymbals t- when you get ready to give your offering because you want everybody to see how, how, how spiritual you are and how, how great your walk of faith is. He says, you know what you have? You have the applause of man and that's your reward. Because here's what happens to self-righteous people. And you see this through the life of the Pharisees. You start judging those who are not keeping the rules. And here's what I know about every church. Every single church has their own list of rules of what you should and should not do. You say, well, are, are we? are you saying we should not follow what the Bible teaches? Absolutely not. I'm just simply saying that your rule keeping is not what creates... God's love for you. God's love for you has always been there. It will always be there. You are pleasing to him because he made you pleasing to him through his son, Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing that rule keeping does. It produces fear. And fear, it, fear says, you can't ever do enough to please God. I can never do enough. And, and here's the thing. Again, everybody has their, their little list and Man, when you're trying to keep the rules in order to build the relationship, then you start focusing on the rules and not the relationship, and the relationship goes nowhere. And many of God's people are fear-driven because, oh, if I, you know, if I, I've heard this say, well, you know, I, pastor, I miss church. Oh, my gosh, I know something's bad going to happen to me because I, I skipped church and went to a football game. The wrath of God's coming down on me. I know it. Or maybe you have a bad week, like you you, you didn't keep the rules very well, and when you go to pray, you pray with, not with confidence, not with boldness, but with God, you know, I know I don't deserve this. I I know I shouldn't ask you this. I, I know I should. Why? Because your whole relationship with God is built on fear. And so, the whole book of Galatians was written to address this very issue. So I give up And I lose my joy, and I try to deal with my brokenness in my own way through things like sex and drugs and porn and eating disorders and all these things. Because I'm trying to, I'm trying to live up to God's expectations. I'm trying to live up to God's rules. And but as much as I try, I can't do it. And now I just feel so bad about myself, and I just don't think God loves me anymore. And I'm not. And so the next time something happens to you, just out of life, it's like I knew it. God's getting me back. Stop it. That's not the relationship God came to establish with you. Number two is selfishness. Especially, selfishness will rob you from joy, especially it's true in relationships, right? God's desire is for you to experience relationship with himself and with other people. That's the way God created us. Even when Adam and Eve were created and in the garden, was God there in the garden with them? Absolutely. Absolutely. It wasn't like after the fall, God started coming to the garden to be with them. No, God created them with the need to have a relationship with their creator as well as with each other. And the same thing is true for you and I. And so God created us this relationship so that we can experience that relationship and have joy. That's what the Christmas message is all about. Through Jesus, we have a relationship with our creator and now he downloads the Holy Spirit in us and a part of the fruit of that spirit is joy. It is our birthright to experience, to have joy, but I must choose to walk in the joy that has been downloaded within me. We have created relationships with one another, whether it's a husband and wife, son, daughter, family, friends, co-workers. Um, But within them, is what? Selfishness. How many of us are really willing to experience, to uh, uh, say, you know, I'm a selfish person? Not many of us, right? But we are. You are, I am. We all have a selfish side to us, do we not? Now listen what James says, and I'll throw this verse up here on the, on the screen, 316. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Now, look at that. When people aren't joyful or at home or in the workplace, do you know what you have? Disorder, confusion, all kinds of problems because selfishness has just like entered into the relationship, entered into the situation. And whenever selfishness enters into the situation, into the relationship, joy goes out the window. It robs you of joy. So how much joy are you experiencing in life? Maybe, perhaps, thank you. Perhaps it's because uh, there's some jealousy in your life. There's envy in your life, in relationships that you have with others. Now, we think, in our minds... Now, we can just set that aside. Well, I may be envious and jealous of this relationship over here, but I'm not going to let that relationship impact or influence any other of my relationships. It eh. can't happen. You're not that good. What happens in one relationship always spills over and bleeds over into other relationships. Number three is bitterness. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God, that no bitter root grows up that causes trouble and defiles many. Why? Because when it springs up, it it, what? It causes trouble. Life is not fair. It runs on two tracks. So when we experience difficult times and loss and hurt, especially when it comes at the hands of somebody else, uh, if we're not careful, the root of bitterness begins to spring up. uh, Because hurt uh, always evolves into anger and resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness, And so it actually just like contaminates our entire emotional system. And so the Bible says the only antidote that we have to cut the root out is forgiveness, right? How easy is that when somebody's hurt you? Jesus and Paul talked a lot about forgiveness. And here's why. Because if you refuse to forgive, God can't help you. He can't. Now, what Jesus taught in the, in the Lord's Prayer, you refuse to forgive others, God will not forgive you. No, all Jesus was saying is, God can't help you because it's the only antidote He has to bring about the healing in your hurt. And if you, if you put that antidote aside, He's got nothing else for you. I got nothing else. So this is so vitally important, and sometimes as we walk through life with this unforgiveness and this root of bitterness, it just robs us of our joy. Number four is fear. What did the angel say to the shepherds? Do not be afraid. I bring good news that will cause great joy. I don't know what creates fear in your life. Is it bad news, death, illness, rejection, the fear of the unknown, the fear of the future? It's critical because people are critical who are given over to fear. Show me a person who has a critical spirit. I'll show you a person who is fear-driven. I mean, they're critical about everything because it now has contaminated their entire system emotionally as well as mentally. And uh, whatever the reason, most people with a critical spirit operate out of fear. And fear is rooted in unbelief that holds us back from the purposes of God. First John says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love dries out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. What is Christmas all about? God is saying, listen, I, I so love the world that I gave my only begotten son. That I've come to take care of your fear factor, that you don't have to live driven by fear. You may have fear hit you initially, but you don't have to travel down that track. You can choose joy in the midst of your fear. Do you think that the Apostle Paul was so ironclad that he never had any fear in his life? That's not what he said. In fact, one time he says, When I bring the gospel to you, I come in fear and trembling. We all deal with these issues, but there are joy robbers if we allow these things to become the tracks upon which we are living our lives. That's not what God created you for. He created you for joy. So if you're going to experience joy, here are three things uh, that you need need to keep in mind. Number one, I experience joy through my convictions about God. My convictions about God. Conviction is a fixed or a strong belief. What's the first thing that in the uh, definition of joy. Joy is a settled assurance, a settled assurance that's built upon what? Conviction. My conviction about God is that he is good. Your conviction about God might be that he is an angry judge, an absent father, a, a, a critical boss. See, there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, um, thoughts about God that people have, and oftentimes it's based upon the earthly relationship with their father. If my father was abusive, I tend to see God as someone who's more abusive. If my father is absent for me, I thought that God would never be there when you needed him the most. He was an absent father. And so we develop these mindsets based off the, the, uh, the philosophy of the evil one because we remember dwelt in his kingdom and so you know our minds and values are influenced by the evil one and so he puts these these thoughts in our minds that build strongholds from which the enemy can operate and so it's only over time for me that I began to, God began to transform my mind and my thoughts about God because joy begins with our convictions about spiritual truths that we're willing to bet our lives on. Truths that are so deeply entrenched in us that they are, that man, they, they are settled assurances about God. And I've got a lot of them. I think that God's worth is incomparable. There's nothing you can stack up against God. There are a lot of people who would argue against me on that one. I think that God's word is reliable over and over again. 300 prophecies about the coming of Jesus on Christmas Day, and every single one of them is fulfilled because God's word is truth and it is always reliable. I think that God's works are all inspiring Man, I'm seeing God do things that I never thought I would see him do through my life. Why? Because I'm just simply saying, you know what? I'm laying it on the line. I'm just trusting you in grander ways. God's ways are always loving. God's will is always good. That God is a good, good father. That's my strong conviction. Regardless of what's going on around me, regardless of the fact that I may experience painful things, that I may go through some deep, dark trials in my life, I still have the firm conviction that God is good. And if I don't have those convictions of that, how am I going to experience joy if I'm questioning the character of God? I can't and I won't. Number two, confidence in God. Confidence is a belief that you can rely on somebody or something, that it's firm trust. I must have a conviction about God that he is good and a confidence that he is trustworthy. Listen, you can't, you can't have joy and worry at the same time. Can't. And why do I worry? You know, worry gives you something to do, it just doesn't get you anywhere. It's like being in a rocking chair. Because deep in my heart, I don't know that God's trustworthy. Watch this. I don't know if God's going to make it work out like I want him to make it work out. I might have to give myself and surrender myself to a God who says, you know what? I know that's the desire of your heart right there, but that's not in your best interest right now. But here's what I'm going to do over here. You're not going to understand it necessarily and you may not like it initially, but this is what I'm going to do because in the end, this is what is needed in your life in this moment in time. That's a hard one. Try to serve those cookies to Santa Claus. Romans 8.28 says, We know that, that in all things God works together the good to those who love him, who's been called according to his purpose. You know, Paul had a great confidence in God, and, and, and he, he believed, you know. Here's what he believed. I think from this, this verse. Listen. Nobody can ruin my life. They can hurt me, they can beat me, they can flog me, they can put me in prison, they can put me before a mock trial, they can do anything they want to me, but they cannot ruin my life because they do not have my soul. My confidence is in God, my conviction is in God, and I know that God's going to take all things, whatever it is, and He's going to bring it about for my ultimate good in His glory. So this is the same conviction that Joseph had, right, back in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 50. You know, what, what did Joseph say to his brothers? You guys meant all this stuff for my harm, but God meant it all for my good. Now think about this, Joseph. I mean, he got thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, in prison for 13 years, all of that in order for God to mold and fashion his character into what he needed it to be in order to save the nation of Israel. How many of us want to go through that stuff? Listen, if God's letting you go through stuff, it's not because God is sitting up in heaven going, I wonder how much, I wonder how much pain I can bring in Zach's life next week. Let's start, let's start, hey, Gabriel, research that. How can I make his life miserable? Why do we think that way about God? That'd be like me saying, you know what? I'm gonna bring my daughter up here and break her arm just to prove you, to you that I can reset it. Why do we think that God wants to you know, somehow hurt us? And listen, he doesn't have to do any of that. He understands that we live in a fallen world among fallen people and there always is going to be hurt and pain and traumatic things that happen in our lives. Our loved ones are going to die, all right? Everybody dies eventually. And it may not come at the age that we like, and it may not come at the right time as far as we are concerned, but that's just the way life is. God made no promises that you were going to live forever, other than in eternity, but you only get to eternity by way the doorway of death. All right, so we set God up for failure when God never promised all these things, that we these expectations we put on him, but what he did say that, you know what, no, uh, no matter what life brings you, it doesn't have to to ruin your life, I will take it all and I will bring something that is good and glorious out of it. If you allow me, I will take your most painful experiences and I will make them a platform for ministry so that you can be used of me to bring grace and mercy into the hearts and lives of others. And Here's the last one, is the choice to give praise to my father. I praise him for who he is. I give thanks for what he has done. Right, so worship is about that. It's about praising God for who He is. It's about thanking Him for what He has done. It's about gratitude. So Paul said, "Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ." Colossians four two, he said, "Devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful and be thankful. Why? Because you are not going to be a grateful person and not experience joy. Right? You." Joy is is the overflow of gratitude. It is it is the praise. So look at these experiences of joy. I have a conviction about God that he's good, man. That no matter what happens, what enters into my life, it has been filtered through the hands of my good good father. Confidence that God is trustworthy. And I believe that God is trustworthy that he's going to take whatever has been filtered through his hands into my life, that he's going to take it. And ultimately, if I trust him, if I persevere, if I don't bail out, if I continue moving with God, that God is going to complete that which he began in my life. And he is ultimately going to bring glory to himself out of all of that. And that causes me to get on my knees before God and to praise him and to worship him for who he is and for what he has done, what he is doing, what he is going to do. And so that dramatically began to transform my concept of worship. That is not about coming into an auditorium and looking at words on a screen and singing with our minds just kind of put in neutral. It is an actual saying, you know what? These are the words. These are the expression of this God I have confidence in. This God that I have, all my confidence is put in. I have deep convictions about my Father and I will choose to worship Him and to praise Him in all things so that I walk the track of joy rather than walking the track of sorrow, walking the track of worry, walking the track of anxiety, walking the track of fear. That is a choice you and I can make. And the reason why we choose joy is because happiness is never enough. Let's bow our heads together. You know, two?